We're in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 10 through 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 10. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We spent the last four teaching times talking about the difficulties that will come in the last days. Last week we concluded that part of 2 Timothy chapter 3 by talking about the ungodly, self-serving leaders and teachers who infiltrate the church and take advantage of the immature, the naive, the emotionally needy Christians, and they do this for their own personal gain. Today we're going to look at, first of all, the cost of being a godly leader in the church. Secondly, being rescued by God in the midst of persecution and suffering. Third, the cost of being a godly Christian in the world for how to stay on the narrow path in spite of ungodliness in the church, and five, the importance of God's word in all of this. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. It is important. It is alive. It is able to speak to us. You work with it through your Holy Spirit. Teach us today from it, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Verse 10 and part of verse 11. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. By the way, Timothy was not with Paul, as far as we know. Uh, in those three places. That was before Paul connected up with Timothy. So there had to be some educating taking place, storytelling, uh, filling in the information for Timothy to understand what happened. What I want us to consider from these two verses is that leaders and teachers, I know we're not all leaders and teachers, but we have at least the opportunity to lead and teach in our own home, our children, possibly in a Bible study with people we're uh, 
helping disciple or evangelizing or working with. Uh, We have those opportunities. So leaders and teachers who wish to be godly can learn much about godly leadership and teaching from those who have gone before and those who are with us even now. Paul, and that's the point here, Paul was Timothy's godly example. And he continues to be an example of godly leadership and teaching to all who read about him and read what he wrote. Yet he's not the only one. God has given us a number of godly examples. If we'll look for them, if we'll observe their lives, if we'll give serious thought to their teaching and learn from their wisdom. I have read a number of biographies, a few autobiographies, church history, early church literature, and there are a number of people who are referenced or talked about, stories that are told of believers who have gone before us, and uh, we can learn so much from their lives. One of the things that intrigues me about that is we often focus in, at least I observe the people around me, often focus in on the miraculous part of their lives without considering the price they paid to live that kind of life. Uh, Amy Carmichael wrote wonderful literature, in my opinion, deeply spiritual, well thought out, and well written on top of that. Yet she suffered in bed for 20 years at the end of her life. No complaints as far as I'm aware of not according to what she wrote, at least, not according to the biographies about her. But that's what happened. She paid a dear price to gain that kind of insight and depth of relationship with God and to be able to put it into written form for those of us who come after to read. Paul went through a lot to become an example to Timothy. Uh, I'm sure wonderful in a, in a world where we are taught within the Christian community that we can be world changers, that we can transform large sectors of the population, that we can bring truth to large areas of the world and see people just radically changed. Um, to even begin to do a smidgen of that requires some serious living and troubles to go through and experience. Think about these folks. As I mentioned them, the Bible presents us with examples such as Noah. Imagine building a boat on dry land and what your neighbors would think. Abraham, Joseph, 19 years between the time he was sold into slavery until he became Pharaoh's right-hand man. Moses, 40 years shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. Joshua, Job, many of God's prophets, the godly kings of Israel, Jesus and the disciples, These are lives that we can look into the word of God and read about and learn from in terms of how to live our own life as 
leaders and teachers, as someone who has influence in the lives of people around us. But in addition, we have church history. We have these biographies like Amy Carmichael and current living examples. There are people today who are good examples of godly leaders and teachers. We also have books, Bible study tools. We have commentaries that have been left, uh, sermons that have been transcribed. There's this abundance of material if we will make use of it. Apparently, Timothy took advantage of Paul's example. For the scripture says he learned how to be a godly leader and teacher uh, and was effective in that work. Paul sent him out and Paul ultimately said, Timothy is the only one I have who serves in the ministry like I do. I have no one else. Timothy must have learned, he must have grown, he must have matured, must have become that leader and teacher by following Paul's example. I want to just talk about a few of the things that Timothy learned from Paul. Timothy not only learned what to teach, and this to me is important, but the reasons for teaching it. We can teach stuff. We, we have the Bible words. We have people who give us uh, literature to use for teaching. We have Bible study helps. Uh, we can teach stuff. There is no doubt. But do we know the reason for teaching it? Do we know why it's important for people to hear these things? We can learn that from godly leaders and teachers. The why is just as important, in my opinion, as being able to teach the words. He learned a way of life and the purpose and goals for living that way. Not just how to live, but why to live that way. Why is it important to make these kinds of sacrifices, to put yourself through these kinds of troubles, to endure these kinds of hardships for the sake of the gospel? Why? Why does it matter? Why is it necessary? He learned that. By observing Paul's ministry experiences, Timothy saw the necessity for faith in God, faith that if we will have that leads us to place our life, our well-being, our ministry, our efforts with the people around us into God's hands. This is not my ministry. It's not your ministry. This is God's work. We are servants. And we are wise to learn that putting the work in God's hands is what we ought to do. Timothy learned the value and ways of patience, of love and perseverance. I think one of the things that I had to learn early on in ministry was not to think of you all as just dumb, stupid people because you weren't getting it. To have patience, to think well of those that I'm trying to help rather than less of them. As I've stated before to us, my observation is there's a time lapse between what I teach and when you appear to be really grasping it. And that's helped me understand that people have to hear it, they have to think about it, they have to see if it's actually realistic for them, they can actually apply it, then how to apply it, and then they got to start working it out in their lives. And that's true for you, 
true for me. It's true for the people that come for counseling. But when I first started, it was very easy to conclude that Christians don't think much. They're just dull of mind. And Timothy learned the ways of patience, love, and perseverance. Those are lessons that are essential if we're going to be a godly leader, a godly teacher, or help people. And Timothy learned that persecution and suffering are a real and often unavoidable part of serving God and living a godly life. If you're going to try to help people around you, you're going to be misunderstood, you're going to be misquoted, you're going to be told you're crazy, that you don't know what you're talking about, that this stuff doesn't work. You have to be willing to accept that as part of the work. So the question is, are you hungry to learn from the godly believers who have gone before you and possibly those who are still with you? After the writer of Hebrews wrote a chapter about the godly and faithful men and women who served and suffered for God's sake, and you can read that in Hebrews 11, he begins chapter 12 with these words. And I think this is really important that we see that these two chapters go hand in hand. They aren't a real break in the letter. It's an ongoing statement. And he writes at the beginning of chapter 12, Therefore, Therefore, we have all these people who have suffered and and served, and some of them glorious stories, some of them horrible stories. But the reality is we have this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, those who have lived and served and suffered for God's sake. So let us learn from them and be motivated by their example to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Yes, they did it. We can look at them and that can be not just a lesson in the fact that it can be done, but how to do it and gain motivation from them for doing it ourselves. So whether we are a church leader, a teacher, or just working with the people in our family, our our, our neighborhood, place at work, my urging to you is, let's thoughtfully observe the lives of godly Christians who have gone before us, those who are living around us today, and let us learn about godly living, godly teaching, godly uh, helping, from their example and their teaching and their writings. The last half of verse 11, Paul says, What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. I don't know how you read the scriptures, but when I read something like that, the first question that I ask myself is, What did God rescue Paul from? I mean, read the previous words. What persecutions and sufferings I endured, he says. So what did God actually rescue him from? Obviously, God did not rescue him from the suffering part of the persecutions. God didn't rescue him from the Jews who followed him around in order to thwart his ministry. God didn't rescue him from the false teachers that were coming into the churches and luring Christians away from the truth of the gospel. 
God didn't rescue him from being imprisoned by Caesar. God didn't rescue him from being put to death, martyred. Let me just read you Paul's own words from 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28. This is just one of the statements. You've heard this before, but God didn't rescue him from these things. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That's uh, 195. Five times 40 is 200. Yeah, 195. Five times, just 39 lashes. Imagine. Once I was stoned, three times I was beaten with rods, three times I was shipwrecked. I even spent a night and a whole day in the ocean, floating, holding on to something. I don't know that he was swimming the whole time. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers from among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst. Imagine. He went hungry often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Those are the things God did not rescue him from. So why and how could Paul say God rescued him out of them all? I believe Paul said this because God rescued him from the things that mattered most mattered most to Paul and should matter most to us. For example, in the face of all that Paul suffered for the ministry's sake, God rescued him from being tempted beyond what he could bear. In other words, Paul was never put in a position where he was forced by something stronger than what he could handle, forced to jeopardize his faith in God, forced to jeopardize his relationship with God and forced to jeopardize his calling from God. God rescued him from that. God rescued him from being mentally and emotionally crushed, from feeling sorry for himself and from the despair that often motivates a person to abandon the work God called him to do. Burnout among pastors and missionaries is just an incredible Amount. There's an incredible amount of that. I know pastors who were in the work for many years, only to ultimately quit and take a non-church job, and I'm not discrediting that decision. But I, my point is they made the decision because they were so burnt out, so discouraged, so um, wanting just to get away from the pressures and the hurts and the demands of the ministry. God rescued Paul from that. Think about what he went through, and yet he never inferred even that he wanted to quit. Never. God rescued him from discouragement after being abandoned and forsaken. In his own words, he said, I stood before Caesar and everybody abandoned me. Nobody was there with me. I was alone in that moment. And God rescued him from pride. 
at the thorn in his flesh. And that's just to name a few of what I believe are the important things that God rescued Paul from. So what is it that you want God to rescue you from when you encounter trials and tribulation or when you are suffering? My experience with myself and with the people around me is that when we are suffering, we are prone to want relief from the pain and the suffering. Yet the godly, the God-trusting person wants God's glory, wants the advancement of God's kingdom, wants stronger faith and greater perseverance, wants continued spiritual growth, wants to remain within the boundaries of godliness so as not to back off or give way to unbelief or resort to selfish and sinful solutions in the midst of difficult circumstances. In other words, the godly, God-trusting person wants the outcome of James 1, 2-4. Stronger faith, longer-lasting perseverance. What do you want God to rescue you from? It is exceedingly wise, in my opinion, for us in this day and age to want the outcome of James 1, 2-4 because according to verse 12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, the reality is we live in a country that protects religious freedom, at least currently. And though it looks probable that a day is coming when godly Christians, in this country at least, will be persecuted, it isn't happening yet. So how do we make use of this? Well, here's one way. We do face the kind of daily challenges, trials, difficulties that can push us or a weaker Christian toward distrust of God or ungodly choices and sinful behavior. We face those things. That's part of everyday life. So the question that I have for us is, will we live godly in Christ Jesus when experiencing more common instances, everyday type instances of injustice, mistreatment, discrimination, dishonest business practices, being taken advantage of, forced to endure unresolved conflict, being misrepresented or maligned, or simply having to put up with the selfish and irrational ways of those around us. Will we live godly in those situations? If we won't, because those situations are the pretests to persecution. And if I can't or won't, I'm not committed to pass the tests that come before, it's really unlikely that we will remain faithful when persecuted. As I stated in verse 1, life in the world and in the church is going to get worse, not better. That's verse 1 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here in verse 13, we get the same message. Paul just says it in a different way. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. In other words, unbelievers, and I'm going to add in mediocre Christians, 
will progressively increase in their rejection of biblically-based godliness and the amount of evil they practice. It's already going on in the church today. This is happening in our, in our own country, in our world today. But there is a way for us to avoid being part of this downward slide, and that comes in verse 14. You know uh, that this is something that requires perseverance, requires commitment. And here's what it says. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Another way to say this, at least for me, is live up to what you know and live up to what you have found to be true, knowing that the one who taught you has lived out what he teaches. We can be taught that God is real. We can be taught that his word is true. We can be taught that his ways work. But to be convinced of these things. Most of us need to substantiate what we know by living according to what we know. It's when you live according to what you know that you discover that what you know actually works. Otherwise, it's just information. It's book learning or school learning, so to speak. It's when you begin to apply it. You begin to live it out. You work it out in your life that's when you see that it actually works and that's when you become convinced. For me, I think this is the way the progression goes. Maybe for you it might be different. But we begin with learning information. We go from learning information to putting that information into practice. And as we put that information into practice, then we not only understand the information better, but we see its importance. We see that it really works, that it is needful for us. For example, you can know Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Today we talked about peace during the worship. But you cannot begin to experience the peace of God that surpasses human understanding until you put a stop to your anxiety, turn away from the fear, cry out to God, tell him what's on your mind and heart about the situation, and then patiently wait for him to bring good out of the difficult situation that you're facing. That's when you begin to see that it actually works. Before that, it's words on a page, it's information. I saw this in a way that really was driven home to me, and I know this is not spiritual, but playing tennis, I was not uh, the world's best tennis player by any means, and there was a gentleman at... uh, YWCA, where we played at least a couple times a week, who was an instructor and a very good player. And he, for some reason, was kind to me and tried to teach me how to play better. And he told me everything I needed to do. He videotaped me, showed me on the video what I was doing wrong and uh, why he was telling me I should do this instead of that. And I heard all of that. It registered 
I knew what he was saying. I understood what he was saying. But it took me about a year and a half to two years to actually, as I began implementing those things, to see that those ways actually worked a whole lot better than the way I was playing tennis. And to see that he was really right and I understood what he was really talking about. I understood the words before. Now I understood the practice of those words. And I understood the value of those words. And I was convinced. And when I reflected on that experience, it helped me see how important it is for us as believers to go beyond knowing what the Bible says to applying it because it's in applying it that it becomes alive within us and it's when it becomes alive within us that we become convinced that God and his ways actually work. It is the abundant life. Paul goes on to say that from childhood, Timothy had known the sacred writings. Apparently his mom, his grandmother taught him. Other people in the community taught him. And the primary point here is that it is the word of God. And this to me is a really important truth. It is the word of God, yes, through the help of the Holy Spirit and godly teachers. There's no question about that. But it is the word of God that teaches us how to love, how to pray, how to think, how to speak, what we ought and ought not desire, how to deal with fear, how to deal with people, how to raise children, how to resolve conflict, how to be humble and meek, especially in the face of people who want to take advantage of us, how to see and handle money, how to be a godly business person, how to treat employees, how to deal with employers. And that means including bad employers. And how to do our job even how to operate the church. It is the word of God that teaches us all that. It teaches us a lot more as well. Attitudes, mindsets, what to believe, what to fear and what not to fear. But I think you get the point. The word of God is so essential and we have it in written form and we have more than one copy. Uh, not only... Do we have uh, a bound copy? We have it on our phones, on our pads, iPads, or whatever your tablet you have, on our computers. I mean, we have it. My urging is let us not just read it. Let us read it and think about it. And then let us think about how it applies to us. And then how to work that out in everyday life. And then let us Work it out. Let us actually put it into practice. And the more you do that, the more you will see how vital the Word of God is to living a sane and sensible life. And Paul concludes this section by saying, All Scripture is inspired by God, God breathed. And all Scripture is profitable. So it's not only inspired by God, it is inspired and profitable. To be profitable means it produces a beneficial result. And those results are seen in these ways. It is inspired and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 
so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. First thing I want to say about that is all scripture is inspired, not just some of it, not the parts you understand or can explain, not the parts that science supports, not just the parts that fit your theology, but all scripture is inspired. And let me just say a few things about the four areas that Paul presents. It's profitable for teaching. God's word provides the basis and the truths necessary for teachers to teach believers how to know God, how to understand God and his word, how to apply God's word in practical ways and to various ways of life, areas of life. And as readers, the same thing happens. It's profitable for reproof. Scripture sets the standard, sets the standard for love and godliness. And it shows the way and means of becoming godly. And because of that, it provides an unbiased and an unchanging basis for reproving those who are acting in foolish immature, selfish, and sinful ways. It is profitable for reproof. It's profitable for correction. Reproof reveals the wrong. Correction points the wayward person in the right direction. Yeah. Correction gives the wayward person not just the direction, but the means How do I get from here to there? Correction provides that means of how we get from here to there so that we can begin doing and continue doing what is right and good. And finally, all scripture is profitable for training in righteousness. A godly life requires prolonged training just as much as an Olympic champion requires prolonged training. You don't become an Olympic champion by one month or even one year of training. We're talking years, and the same is true for godliness. Scripture shows us the how and why for training that can produce kind of godly results that God wants to see in our lives. Final statement in that chapter is so that the man and woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. To be adequate is to be equal to the task. To be equipped is to be sufficiently supplied with whatever is needed to do the task. One of the uh, teachings that I heard many, many years ago was on a cassette tape was listening to it, but the person made the point that the word Lord uh, in the Old Testament was not in reference to the kind of master-slave relationship that we saw in the U.S. uh, with the plantation owners and the slaves that they purchased. But it was a different kind of a, a relationship. And that same word is used in terms of our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. Same word. And that Lord was somebody who, yes, told you what to do, but gave you everything you needed to do the job. 
You didn't have to go out and get anything yourself. Yes, you had to do what the boss said, the owner said, the Lord said, the master said, but the master provided everything that you needed. And what God is telling us here in the scripture is that the word of God is part of that provision. It gives us what we need so that we can do the work of living a godly life and of serving and helping the people around us and serving in the body of Christ. just want to make this point that for me, the word of God is the foundation. It is the immovable object. I refer to it as the anchorable truth. Because it is the word of God that shows us in printed form, <clears throat> certainly enlightened by the Holy Spirit, aided by the work of the Holy Spirit, helped by godly teachers that help us see what's there. But it is the word of God that shows us who God is, what he's like, what he wants from us, how he enables us, what we need to do to be what he wants from us, and how we ought to be as his servants. Just to take something out of Peter's writings, may we, like newborn babes, long for the pure uncompromised truth of God's word so that by it we may grow into godly people who are able to proclaim the excellencies, the wisdom and the truths of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light.